Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The YWCA's transitional housing program gets a boost. The Ontario Liberals leave Hamilton with a new foundation. More calls for a public inquiry into election interference. What will the Bank of Canada do this week? Chris Rock delivers a knockout punch and another blah NHL trade deadline day. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The YWCA Hamilton has a 65-unit building on McNabb Street South, pretty close to Hamilton City Hall. It has been for years a huge help for women struggling with homelessness. It's really made a massive difference in the lives of so many. And so Hamilton City Council very recently approved $2.6 million in annual funding for this transitional housing program. Medor Upal is the CEO of the YWCA Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Medora, good morning. How are you today? I'm good, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. How, how big is this funding going to be? Uh, it's completely transformative for our program and for the work of the YWCA. And, and without it, what would happen? So without the funding, um, I'm, I'm not sure um, how sustainable our operations really are. Uh, this funding allows us to provide not only increased and appropriate staffing to meet the needs of the women who are coming into the transitional housing program, but also basic necessities like food, our ability to turn over units and uh, allow more women to come in faster into the program, do intakes. So it's pretty, um, it's fundamental, uh, foundational funding for us really to keep the program open. But beyond that, it actually allows us to bring in more intensive uh, and appropriate supports to to assist women who are dealing with really complex issues around homelessness. Where are these individuals coming from? Are they all in Hamilton? Are they uh, are they homeless? Are they living in encampments? Give us a sense of uh, where these people are right now and, and how you're able to help them. Yeah. So 95% of our referrals are from women's shelters or um, homelessness services where people are um, maybe precariously housed or living on the streets. They might be living in encampments. Uh, One of the biggest challenges for us, though, is those who with high acuity needs, who have really complex, more intensive needs. We've been um, unsuccessful in supporting well through the program because we right now with the current funding only have two staff to assist 65 women. Um, So this is a game changer for us, this funding, because it really means we can, those women who are existing in encampments who've had long histories of homelessness will be more successfully um, able to access our program and then find permanent housing from there. Medora Upal, CEO of the YWCA Hamilton, joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about new annual funding for the local WISE transitional housing program. And this is, as I just said, transitional housing. How is this helping uh, these individuals get to more permanent housing? Well, housing is... First of all, access to affordable housing is still a challenge in the city and one we at YWCA are committed to addressing. But um, for the women we're seeing in transitional housing, there's more than just housing they need. They're dealing with a whole long history of trauma, often related to violence that they've experienced that led to their homelessness or during the periods when they are homeless. We are working with women with complex needs around mental health as well as substance use. Uh, And so stabilization getting supports in place, getting um, 
the networks and the relationships they need to be successful living independently in the community is the work that we do in transitional housing. So women come in, um, but when they leave, their lives look a lot better and a lot more uh, safer and stable so that the permanent housing can be successful. And does this funding address all that you do within the transitional housing program? It addresses everything we do within transitional housing. So it provides it provides for all aspects of the work. So from uh, managing the residential part of the facilities, because we do still have community support spaces, as well as providing food and all the staffing needs we have for a 24-7 program. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Medora Upal, the CEO of the YWCA Hamilton. We're talking about $2.6 million in annual funding for the local WISE transitional housing program. Um, as I mentioned off the top, this is a 65-unit building on McNabb that's, that's been there for years and has done some incredible work. I would imagine with the, the housing situation in our community that this facility is full all the time. Yeah, this is, we have a program that's consistently full. We have a waiting list. But one of the challenges we've had is actually um, filling, uh, turning over our units quickly enough. So we can sit with 10 to 15 vacant units just because we do not have the staffing and the resources in order to turn them over. So now with this funding, we actually can turn units over more quickly, bring more women into the program faster. Is this an opportunity perhaps for volunteers to get involved? Would you would you accommodate that? We absolutely have volunteers. We rely on volunteers all year long. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, ywcahamilton.org, you can find out more about our volunteer information. Phenomenal stuff. Uh, Medora, thanks for your time today. Good luck with this uh, added funding. It's going to go to a, a phenomenal cause. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Rick. Medora Upal is the CEO of the YWCA Hamilton. And that $2.6 million, as you heard, going a long, long way to help a lot of people in our community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Pretty big weekend for liberals in this province, and it was held right here in Hamilton at the Convention Center by Carmen's over the weekend as um, 1,500 or so liberals gathered for the annual general meeting to, among other things, lay the foundation for the party's next leadership race. Here to talk about it is Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Colin, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning. Doing pretty well, thanks. My back isn't too sore from all that shoveling. (laughs) Well, that's good news. A couple of notable items came out of this weekend's gathering in Hamilton, including a new party president for the Liberals. What should we know about Catherine McGarry? Yeah, Catherine McGarry, former cabinet minister with uh, within the uh, liberal government, uh, you know, that they were in power for 15 years. But what, what's key, some insiders in, in the liberal camp tell me is she was also, you know, really backed by one of the leadership candidates, Yasser Nakvi. And, and that, that is going to be kind of an important uh, thing going forward or an important relationship going forward, because the big question is, what are the rules going to be surrounding the actual Ontario liberal leadership? Catherine McGarry won by, I believe, about 25 or so votes. Um, and, and, you know, the party executive will really get to determine exactly what this uh, leadership race is going to look like, including the date. And the date is, is really important because, you know, some candidates might need a little bit longer of a runway. Some candidates, you know, want a shorter runway because it might advantage them a little bit more. So that's really what Catherine McGarry now 
controls, that process of what the leadership uh, may look like in accordance with what the membership actually wants. And if she is or has ties to one of the leadership candidates, you know, some might raise that question as to whether or not some of these rules could be skewed in favor of one versus another. Nobody launched their leadership bid this weekend, but there appears to be a few interesting candidates uh, on the horizon, or at least mulling over the opportunity. Who should we have our eyes on? Okay, so there are actually quite a number of candidates uh, in this in this field. Some are further uh, down the road than others. Uh, others are still kind of mulling their leadership bid. So if you take a look at, let's go from kind of the, the innermost ring to the outermost ring, right? The ones who are, you know, the closest there. Uh, and that includes two federal MPs. One of them was Yasser Nakvi, the former attorney general in Ontario. The other one is Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, who is currently a federal MP as well under Justin Trudeau. Uh, he's an interesting one because he's quite an outspoken member of the Liberal caucus, sometimes votes against his own party, even though he is, uh, you know, a backbench liberal and hasn't really been booted out and has really been celebrated for being a thorn in the side of the prime minister, um, you know, from within the liberal ranks itself. So those two are really close. Another MPP, Ted Shu, is also really close. He's been spending a lot of time over the last number of months going across the province, trying to figure out, you know, whether he has enough support to really launch a successful leadership bid. We got a couple of other caucus members as well in the liberal camp um, who could be running. That includes Stephanie Bowman um, and Adil Shamji. Both of them are mulling uh, runs as well. The, the two wild cards in this race, though, are former cabinet minister uh, under Justin Trudeau, Navdeep Baines, and Bonnie Crombie, the current mayor of Mississauga. They both attended the liberal convention over the weekend, and there's a lot of questions as to whether or not they are actually going to mount a successful challenge or if they're going to jump into the race. We've been hearing a lot from liberals that, you know, if Navdeep Baines runs, then Bonnie Crombie might not run. If Bonnie Crombie runs, Navdeep Baines might not run because, you know, they may have a lot of overlapping support. Uh, but those are the names kind of in the running right now. Certainly much more um, exciting and there's a lot more interest in it uh, than with the NDP leadership that we saw just a few months ago. A lot of names to consider, that is for sure. Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we recap the uh, Liberal Convention over the weekend here in Hamilton. Uh, Liberals also approved a new leadership voting system. Why is that important? They are now moving to a one-member, one-vote system, which is widely seen as a little bit more democratic than what the old system was. The old system was a delegated convention, and you know you would have to be selected as a delegate first, or there are ex officio members. So former MPPs, as an example, would get an automatic vote. A lot of people saw that system as really favoring a lot of the party insiders, that a few people who, you know, were either former MPPs or uh, former presidents or whatnot may have had a disproportionate influence on the outcome of the leadership vote. And so for those candidates who may have had long-standing relationships with the party, who may have kind of known the party structure really well, it would benefit them because they were an insider. So it would be insiders picking insiders. With the one-member, one-vote system, it's largely seen as a little bit more democratic. Uh, you know, uh, members from across the 124 ridings will get to have their say directly in who they want to be the leader. And then that's weighted 
per riding. So for example, you know, if you've got one riding that only has 10 members, but another riding that has 10,000 members, you know, those ridings would be weighted so that each riding would have some kind of equality when it comes to the actual selection of the candidate. But it's largely seen as a little bit more demographic, uh, democratic rather. And it's important to some of these candidates as well. So if you've got candidates who are, you know, not party insiders, who are a little bit outside, but they need that broader appeal you know, now they can appeal to the individual members as opposed to just the insiders to try to get those votes. Colin, always great catching up. Thanks for the details. And uh, we'll touch base down the road. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Colin DeBello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief Global News. You can read more from Colin online at 900CHML.com and globalnews.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML. Liberal government coming under intense pressure over the last number of weeks to explain what the heck is going on with alleged election interference by China. The last couple of federal elections, we have come to learn that China has tried to influence how the vote has gone. And uh, we also heard from CSIS director David Vigneault last week, and he agreed with an independent panel that determine the integrity of the past two federal elections was not compromised by foreign actors. I, I think at the end of the day, it's important for the public to learn, A, what exactly has happened, and B, more importantly, what are the plans to combat this going forward? Because we've heard this in other countries as well, whether it's Russia or China or Iran, those being the top three meddlers when it comes to elections. We've heard it down in the States. We're hearing it now in Canada. So what is the plan? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, one of many calling on the prime minister to hold a public inquiry into alleged Chinese election interference. And Mr. Singh joined CHML's Roy Green show over the weekend to discuss this very issue. And Roy asked Singh if China's election interference has made him think about ending the liberal NDP supply and confidence agreement. And a great, a legitimate, great question. Well, no, it's not a decision we're making today, but I can tell you there's been a number of times when uh, we've put forward an idea and the Liberals and the Conservatives, frankly, have said no. And we kept on pushing and we ended up getting it. One of those is the GST rebate, which put uh, nearly $500 in the pockets of 10 million Canadians. When we presented this idea, thinking that this would be a good idea to provide a little bit of relief to folks, the Liberals came out against it, the Conservatives came out against it. We kept on fighting, and months later, we got all parties to agree. And in November, people received that doubling of the GST. And we, we've heard that kind of answer from Jagmeet Singh really over and over and over again whenever there is a hot-button topic or some kind of controversy that the voting public is looking at the federal liberals. And, you know, someone in the media will say, all right, Mr. Singh, is this, is this the issue that is going to knock that supply and confidence agreement off kilter. And so the the stock answer has been, well, we're going to continue to fight to try to get the things that we want to see implemented. And I get it. Not every little thing is going to topple the government, but there's got to be more than just working very hard to to get it back online. So again, Roy asked him whether or not the agreement, the supply and confidence agreement remains in play. Well, there's always an opportunity for us to revisit that. So that remains an open 
an open uh, question we can always revisit and we will uh, constantly make that analysis. Right now we've made that demand and I gave the example of the GST rebate because um, we, we want to see a, a public inquiry right. and just because we've heard a no today or we've heard a no recently doesn't make us give up. We're going to keep on fighting. But you haven't and heard anything that's from the Prime Minister that suggests he might change his mind. Have well, you? that was the same thing with the GST rebate, frankly. Yeah, but it's Initially, not the same. There's no equivalence. He came out opposed to it, and it took some months before we were able to force the government to do it. So okay. uh, I'm saying I'm not precluding, I'm not in any way ruling out that it could come to a point that we've got to exercise that ability. Mm -hmm. That's something that we absolutely have the ability to do. I'm just saying that's not a decision we're making today. Okay. And uh, what we are doing is going we're going to continue to apply pressure. Like we've done in the past, we've been told no uh, on many things. You know, we were told no on the dental care. We were told no on pharmacare. Right now, kids in our country get... They're not getting the pharmacare, yeah. Yeah, and pharmacare is going to be happening. The legislative framework, which the liberals and conservatives voted against, not two years ago, is going to actually happen this year. So we're not giving up just because we hear a no, not just, just because the government doesn't want to do something. One, one thing is certain, though, Singh and many others including myself, dumbfounded as to why this prime minister does not want a public inquiry into election interference. That is something that is completely, uh, I have no clue why he would not want to uh, get this out of the partisanship of the committee, which is clearly not working. And in committee, it's become clear that it's all about scoring points because the, the very serious allegations around nomination meetings in both elections those um, those touch on liberal and conservatives, and so and and then foreign interference when it comes to China touches on the the liberals more. The foreign interference when it comes to Russia uh, potentially touches on the conservatives. So they're both trying to play this game about who's worse or who's to blame, and we frankly don't care about who's worse. We want to actually protect our democracy. And we okay. think that this is clearly something that that cries out for a public inquiry, the nonpartisan. Uh, independence, transparency, where the goal is to safeguard our, our elections and safeguard our democracy, and the goal isn't to try to score points on each other. Makes sense to me, and Singh telling the Roy Green Show over the weekend that it's important that we have this kind of conversation for all to see. This would remove any sort of the partisanship. It would uh, give Canadians more confidence. And, and while we know that this didn't impact the outcome of the election, still quite serious that a, that a foreign government would get involved in who is selected as a candidate. It's pretty serious, and we don't want things to escalate any further. So let's stop this in its tracks. Let's nip this in the bud. Take these really concerning allegations seriously and do everything we can to identify the exact nature of the problem and look at real solutions so that we can prevent this from happening in the future. Singh says he has regular meetings with the Prime Minister. I'd love to be a fly on the wall during those meetings and says he's absolutely going to be bringing this up with Mr. Trudeau. For his part, uh, Trudeau says his government is looking very carefully at the recommendations from a report that looked into alleged election interference and... Um, it really hasn't made it. Well, he's made a decision on the public inquiry. He doesn't want one. We've seen uh, over the past number of uh, days and weeks, uh, many Canadians very concerned about the issue of foreign interference into our democracies, into our election processes. We share that concern. I don't know if he does. He believes there are already independent mechanisms in place to determine what kinds of foreign interference is happening. And I, I understand those mechanisms are in place and they need to be. But at the end of the day, where there's smoke, there is fire. And I, there's some kind of inferno blowing here. 
uh, or burning, I should say. And so we need to get to the bottom of it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big week this week once again for the Bank of Canada. And anyone who has a variable rate mortgage or has a line of credit or is looking at their debt levels thinking <laughs> enough already with the interest rate hikes. Well, this coming week, Bank of Canada expected to make a decision once again whether to lower the rate, which <laughs> I think at this point is wishful thinking, uh, holding the line or doing what we all want it not to happen, and that is making that rate go up once again. Uh, there's also going to be a decision in the U.S. in terms of interest rates. The U.S. Federal Reserve is going to be contemplating its next move, and that could be bad news for the Canadian dollar. Here to explain how all of this works is Marvin Ryder, professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Marvin, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm just great. Glad to be with you. Hey, let's start on this side of the border, Bank of Canada. It's going to hold the line, right? That's what our thinking is at this point. Everything that the Bank of Canada is trying to accomplish with higher interest rates seems to be happening, meaning inflation came down uh, in January, down to 5.9%. We think when we get the February data just a little later in this month, uh, it will have fallen again. That's what they wanted. So there's no need to increase the rates. Now, what people want to hear is the opposite. Well, then can you start cutting the rates? And of course, the answer is not yet. Inflation at 5.9% is still twice as high as it should be. They'd like to see inflation in the 2 to 3% range. But my best advice to people is just, if you can, hold on. What I mean by that is it is possible that in the middle of the summer, say July, August, uh, inflation will be down in that 2 to 3% range. And then by the fall, it is possible, not maybe probable, but possible, the Bank of Canada will cut those rates. So for the moment, hold on, no increase, but also no decrease. Yeah, what are the factors that would keep inflation high throughout the summer months? Is, is there a possibility of that? Well, there's always a possibility of it, but it'd be due to international activity. So if I can put a glass jar over Canada, everything is working in the way, way it's supposed to right now inside Canada. The, the problem is, in fact, that we had higher inflation in 2022 than we wanted due to forces beyond our control. That primarily was Russia invading Ukraine. Once that happened, the price of oil shot up, the price of, say, flour and other sort of basic commodities shot up. And we had higher inflation than we wanted because of what was happening there. Now, Assuming we've got some stability going on in the Ukraine, meaning the war, somebody wins for a couple of days, somebody else wins for a couple of days and nothing else happens. If Mr. Putin were, for instance, to fire off a couple of nuclear weapons, which to my mind is absolutely unthinkable, but if he were, then wait a minute, we, we could have other problems. Or if China decided to invade Taiwan or if Kim Jong-un fired off something, that could come back. But barring something major on the international front, Everything's going in the right direction, and now I think there will be dividends to all of this later this year. We still have solid job numbers in this country. In fact, it seems each and every month we're creating more and more jobs, and the, the unemployment rate is either holding steady or, or going down. I, is that an anomaly when we consider where the inflation rate is? Not so much due to the inflation rate, but the concern in this year has been, uh, will there be a recession? Will these high interest rates cause people to stop spending money, cause businesses to stop mending, spending money, and will that cause a recession? And normally when there's a recession, we see job losses. We've not seen them so far. Now, we're going to get 
February's job numbers on Friday of this week, and no one's expecting to see a major move in the unemployment rate. Even take the bad news at the end of last week of Nordstrom closing, that closing process isn't going to be done until June, so there is no immediate job losses that are going to hit. As long as we can keep full employment or relatively full employment, again, if there does happen to be some kind of minor, minor, minor recession is going to be relatively painless. All right, let's go down to the U.S. as we got a couple more minutes with Marvin Ryder, professor in the DeGroot School of Business at McMaster University. U.S. Federal Reserve has a similar decision to make. Where do you see this going? Right, so that's going to happen not this week, but next week on that Wednesday. Um, the Federal Reserve Board and the United States situation is worse than Canada, meaning their inflation, although it has come down a bit, is not coming down at the rate that Canada's inflation is. And so we are expecting that next week, the Federal Reserve Board will increase their interest rates another quarter of a percent. And that will be the first time in more than a decade that Canada, the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve Board are on a different page in terms of monetary policy. If their interest rates go up, then investors can take money and say, well, I could invest in Canada risk-free at one rate, but I can get a better rate risk-free in the United States. That means dollars are going to flow in the United States. And as Canadian dollars get converted into American dollars, that's going to put a little downward pressure on the Canadian dollar. Right now, the Canadian dollar is at around 73.5 cents U.S. I don't think this is going to be huge pressure, but I won't be shocked to see it fall to 73, 72 cents U.S. Uh, won't happen this week, but could start to happen the week after if the monetary policy deviates. What does all that mean? Well, nothing if you're going to stay in Canada and buy things in Canada. But if you're planning to travel and use the American currency, this might be the week to buy the currency rather than waiting till next week. And for in terms of inflation, it will also hit that just a little bit, because if our dollar falls, then when we import fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, usually from the United States or other other jurisdictions south of the United States, we pay in American dollars a lower Canadian dollars make those a little more expensive again. So we're going to watch that with interest. Not sure what's going to happen, but for sure this week, Bank of Canada doesn't move. With March break next week, some timely information from Marvin Ryder. Marvin, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you this morning. Marvin Ryder, professor in the DeGroot School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Wow, Saturday night, I was absolutely entertained. Entertain. There's not many times you flick on Netflix or any other of your streaming services and are captivated for an hour. But I was Saturday night, thanks to this guy. I love Will Smith. My whole life, I love this guy. I saw him open up for Run DMC at the Nassau Coliseum. And now I, I watch Emancipation just to see him get whooped. <laughs> And a lot of people go, Chris, how come you didn't do nothing back? How come you didn't do nothing back that night? Because I got parents. That's why. Because I was raised. Okay? I got parents. And you know what my parents taught me? Don't fight in front of white people. Yeah, a year after the slap, comedian Chris Rock's live comedy special on Netflix delivered a knockout blow. You can now stream the show called Selective Outrage on Netflix. Joining us now to talk about it is Bill Brio, television critic and author. Bill, welcome back to the show. How are you? 
I'm uh, well, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. I thought Chris Rock Saturday Night Live on Netflix. He was at his absolute best. It was witty. It was raw. It was in your face. Um, that included a, an explosive ending. What did you think? Well, I'm not as, uh, you know, I'm going to disagree with you somewhat. I, I enjoyed it. I thought the fact that it was live was really cool. Uh, you did feel like you were in a theater watching his performance. It was full of energy, and uh, he looked great. Um, I just thought some of it, I, and the ending was very powerful. All the Will Smith stuff was hilarious. But a lot of it was, I don't know, like, you know, he did a lot of jokes about dating and abortion mm -hmm. that were um, uh, creepy. <laughs> like, I just, I thought he crossed the line a few times. And I think the problem with Chris Rock, his act has always been, it sort of shocks you and wakes you up. And that's yeah. the beauty of it. But the older you get, the more you have to ramp up that shock value. And I think that you just reach a point where it, it doesn't have the same value. He did have some good uh, one-liners and, and stories about high-priced yoga pants, uh, the Kardashians, <laughs> uh, you know, the Capitol riots. That was that was a good bit. I thought overall, yeah. and I do, yeah, I do agree with you. The abortion one was, and he's always been a guy that crossed over the line. That was probably the one that really brought you over the line a little too much. Yeah, even the, the audience was kind of hushed yeah. during a lot of that. Uh, you know, like he basically advocates that you should be able to kill babies right up until the age four. Uh, well, you know, the, it, it's a shocking, humorous line, I guess, but it just, there's something about it. And you hear an audience kind of go, uh-oh. <laughs> Where's uh, he going that, with this? Yeah. Yeah. It takes you out of it away a bit. Yeah. For Netflix, could this be the start of something really big for them? These live, whether it's comedy sets or whatever the case is, could this be the launching pad of something new and enormous for this company? Yeah, I think so. You know, Dave LaChapelle has done many specials for them. And sure, why not do some live specials with him? Uh, and I think it's interesting to see the contrast between those two. Chappelle's uh, humor, more thoughtful, you know, less based on shock. And I think it just ages better right now. Uh, not to say Chris Rock couldn't do a f another fabulous show, but... Um, I just think that the, there was an advantage with Chappelle stuff. The other thing is I kind of like the after show. Mm. Maybe one of the few critics who did. They had Dan Dana Carvey and David Spade uh, with a panel of J.B. Smoove and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And they sort of took into account what uh, you know uh, Chris Rock just did and talked about it. I thought that was kind of interesting. The one part about the after show, and I agree with you, I, the, you know, the before and the after show were kind of good, but Arsenio yeah. Hall called Chris Rock the goat, which I think is a term that's thrown out too many times. You only got about a minute to chew on this, but you know, I, I thought instantly of Robin Williams, George Carlin, Richard Pryor as being maybe the goats of this, you know, stand up Jerry Seinfeld of this stand up comedy scene. Does Chris Rock fit in that category? I think he's the Gen X goat. You yeah. know, like yeah. I think if you're a certain age, yeah, like he was red hot when, uh, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago and, and performance wise live. Yeah. Pretty, pretty much up there for sure. But I mean, I, yeah, Robin Williams, George Carlin, my goodness, um, they're my goats. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie Murphy can throw him in there too. He was great Absolutely. back in the day. Yeah, of course. Richard Pryor, my God. Yeah. Bill, we'll have to leave it there. Appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for joining us.
My pleasure, Rick. Anytime. As Bill Briou, television critic and author. Find out more online, briou.tv. That's B-R-I-O-U-X dot TV. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you're a hockey fan, you were kind of left, meh, really uninspired last Friday after the NHL's trade deadline came and went. Really, by all accounts, an absolute dud of a deadline day. There was, what, 18, 19 trades made. None of them really fit the blockbuster category. What has happened to deadline day? Why has it become so blah? Stephen Ellis is an associate editor and prospect analysis with Daily Faceoff and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Stephen, how are you this morning? I'm great. How are you doing, Rick? I'm good, but I'm, you know, a little uh, unentertained, I guess, by the National Hockey League. It used to be way more exciting on deadline day, especially when you consider, you know, future Hall of Famers like Ray Bork, uh, Brett Hall, Larry Murphy, Ron Francis. They were all traded once on NHL trade deadline day. It was, was way more exciting. What's happened? I think teams just got smarter. I think part of it is like, you know, when you make a trade, like look at the Islanders going out there and getting Bo Horvat and whether that was a, a big addition or not, that was, that was quite a few weeks ago at this point. And they were able to get more out of him than just getting a two week rental essentially, or a 20 game rental, I should say. Uh, it, so teams are making the deals a little earlier so you get more games out of it. But in some cases that means the price goes down too, because you're not waiting till the last minute and teams are trying to capitalize on your, on you being desperate. So I think teams again, just got smarter and just tried to use their time better. Would the deadline be more exciting if it was earlier in the season? Let's say, I don't know, the end of January. I, I don't know, because that's tough, because you're going to have too many teams there that don't know what they're going to be like. And I think a lot of teams would end up just not making a move in that case, because uh, they are like, well, we don't want to risk things depending on how our season goes. And, you know, needs changes when you get into later of the season. So I like where it is. What about if we had it like a week before the playoffs started? Now, that would be wild. I think we'd see we'd see way too many sellers. But, uh, you know, maybe teams like Vancouver wouldn't go out there and buying players and confusing everybody. Yeah. Winners and losers. Let's start with the winners after the deadline. Maybe not particularly on deadline day, but which teams improve the most from, let's say, the start of the year to right now on uh, a week or not, not even a week, a couple of days after the deadline. Well, the rich get richer. You look at the Boston Bruins going out there and getting Dmitry Orlov, Tyler Bertuzzi, and Garner Hathaway. That just became much heavier, much tougher to play against. Oh, by the way, they're already first in the NHL. Uh, you look at the New Jersey Devils going out there and getting Timo Meyer. They traded a couple of, of, of draft picks and prospects, but they were... They, they already had enough of that, so that was a good move there. Uh, Rangers, you can't go wrong with adding Tarasenko and Patrick Kane. That's a team that's going to be obviously much more dangerous offensively. Uh, I do like what the Toronto Maple Leafs did. They, you know, so far the, the results have been mixed on the ice, but you go out there and you didn't have to give up any of your top prospects, and you brought in a guy like Ryan O'Reilly, you bring Jake McCabe, Sam Lafferty, Eric Gustafson. I think this team's going to be, uh, the, it's the deepest this team has probably ever been. So I'd say a lot of talent in the East right now. All right, we have the winners. Who is in the losers category? Uh, I'd say uh, for sure the Carolina Hurricanes. You know, they're a team you're seeing all the other Eastern teams doing these big moves and you don't bring anyone that's super impactful. The Flyers just needed to sell off pieces and they did absolutely nothing there. Pittsburgh, that's a team that's in there and, and in the running and they they went out there and marginally improved their team. And then the Canucks, a, a group that had, again, so many assets, it seemed like they were going to be able to trade everybody and rebuild. And instead, they actually just moved picks to bring in a guy like Philip Ronick, who's good, 
but you don't need him now. So uh, again, some questionable moves there. Yeah, I think of all the teams that you mentioned, the Canucks one really baffled me the most because they're they're nowhere close to a playoff position. This is a team that should start rebuilding. They have some great pieces to work with, but uh, they clearly did not do enough. Yeah, like going out there and getting Heronic and getting um, uh, Bovillier earlier, like those are guys that are going to be pretty decent players, but not enough to trade away first round picks like you did for for Heronic. You should keep that pick. That could have been a 13th, 14th, 15th overall pick, and that gives you another high pick in the draft to say you're trading him for a guy who A, is injured, and B, might be a second pairing defenseman. I, I just don't get that one. Stephen Ellis is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Stephen is an associate editor and prospect analyst with Daily Faceoff for recapping the NHL trade deadline. On Friday afternoon, really a a ho-hum kind of day for hockey fans. The two Stanley Cup combatants from last year, Colorado, Tampa Bay, relatively quiet. Um, Where do you see them as we head towards the start of the playoffs coming up in about a, a month and a half? I'm still concerned about Colorado's goaltending. You know, when when they've got an okay goaltending from Georgia, that's been good. But and they showed last year, you don't need elite goaltending necessarily if you've got a good enough team. But I think uh, this is a team where I think everyone's kind of underestimating them right now because they're not blowing the doors off. Uh, when you look at what Tampa Bay did, they traded a lot of picks to bring in Tanner Janot. Well, Janot's been fantastic since they got him in, and he's kind of the guy uh, that could make a difference in your bottom six. So, uh, you know, overall, kind of a quiet deadline for both. But we we just know how good these teams are. They're still really deep. Yeah, no doubt about it. Stephen, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us and breaking down NHL trade deadline day. Thanks so much. Stephen Ellis, associate editor and prospect analyst with Daily Faceoff, one of the players that the Leafs did bring in, Ryan O'Reilly, might be on the shelf for a few weeks after a suspected broken finger or fingers after taking a shot off the hand Saturday night in Vancouver. We'll get, uh, I'm sure, the bad news Uh, Anytime now, that is for sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.